You're listening to Sound Funding, conversations with Europe's leading experts in impact investing. Today, I spoke with Elena Casolari, co-founder and CEO of Opus Italia, an impact fund, and co-founder and chair of Opus LCEF, a foundation. Elena comes from a traditional investment banking background, but after covering emerging markets for 12 years, she found a calling in the impact space. We talked about gender lens investing, what the new political landscape in Italy means for social innovation, and where to find a quiet moment with beautiful art in Milan. I'm Ryan Grant-Little. Thanks for joining. I have with me today Elena Casolari, who's the co-founder and CEO of Opus Italia. Welcome, Elena. Happy to be here, Ryan. Thanks. So, Thanks for your invite. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us over Zoom from Milan today. Tell us a little bit about Opus Italia. What does it do? How big is the fund? Where does it work? What's the investment thesis? Yeah, Opus Italia is a, a commercial fund. It's an impact commercial fund regulated by Bank of Italy. We founded uh, Opus Italia two years ago. So we are now in the investment period and we are deploying capital into impact enterprises in Italy. So we are looking for enterprises that tackle societal structural problems in Italy. And we have already invested in two enterprises, deploying in each of them 2 million euro. The fund is a 36, currently 36 million euro fund. And our investors are institutional investors from Italy and Europe. And uh, our investment thesis is to fund uh, and support uh, enterprises that uh, can stand as a benchmark uh, at a national level uh, for some uh, solutions uh, tackling uh, poverty in uh, its uh, well in its uh, several dimensions. And of course, uh, we do need it. I mean, Italy is uh, really struggling uh, under many ways. And so you're focused specifically on Italy, not, not yeah. In, okay, yeah, exactly. Okay, and so and some of the problems that you're talking about, the structural problems in Italy, that would include like youth unemployment or whatever. Yeah, else. exactly, youth unemployment. That unfortunately, Italy stands at the very highest ranking compared to other European countries. And we also have the problem of migrants' inclusion. Of a gender, gender is uh, the gender gap is uh, again uh, a very large problem here in Italy. So this is why our fund embeds uh, a very precise gender lens uh, in approach, and uh, we try to be consistent in our choices uh, and uh, in our strategy, investment strategy. Yeah, I want to talk about the gender lens stuff a little bit as well. What is your strategy? Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe also about the two investments you've already made? So what attracted to you, you to them to bring them into the portfolio? Well, first, I, I like just to stress uh, the point that for us, a gender, gender lens approach is not just counting women, uh, counting women at uh, board level or at uh, workforce level, uh, for us, it's very much about power dynamics at the company level and also the way the company can really support like an ecosystem 
ecosystem can change. So um, gender lens means uh, looking at the company, of course, uh, from uh, uh, different layers. Uh, we wanted to make sure that uh, the company has a gender approach in terms of uh, also supply chain. So they also in terms of the customers, employees. And of course, the gender is just one, let's say, one side of the diversity. We believe that diverse balance company perform better than companies that do not have it. And so for us, the diversity is a more articulated approach beyond the gender, just the gender. And so when you talk about diversity lens investing, is that an approach? Is there a toolkit that you use that constitutes the lens? How does that work in practice as you're looking at a deal? Okay. Well, first, uh, as I say, diversity can mean many other things beyond gender. Can mean, for instance, uh, cognitive diversity. So we look for a team where we find uh, like this richness in terms of background, in terms of skills, in terms of competencies. We, mm-hmm. we don't like uh, like just a team made by people coming maybe from the same university or from the same background. We like a diversity, yeah. you know, and... Uh, and cognitive diversity is important. It's something that we should also look for as, a, as an industry overall. And also in our, in our fund, we have one partner who has, doesn't have or didn't have any specific skills in finance, but he did have and he does have a very strong background in social entrepreneurship, basically is an entrepreneur. And if you look, Ryan, at how the industry and the asset management company are made of in terms of the people, you understand that there is a very lack of diversity because the majority of like a fund manager, majority of partners come from a specific background, from a financial background, but maybe do not have really an expertise in entrepreneurship or in specific in, in different industries. So this is something that we like to feel in or to contribute in feeling in starting from ourselves and from the way we structure our fund in terms of the skills and set and experiences. And uh, also when we look at the company, as they say, we like to have, uh, to see this diversity from uh, really from the ground. We like to understand uh, whether our entrepreneurs also are aligned with us in uh, trying to, to build a company where diversity is really in the DNA. I like to ask people in the impact investing space if they think it's easier to take people with an impact background and train them for finance or people with a finance background and train them for impact. (laughs) Well, if you ask me, you know, no, but this is a good question. But if you ask me, of course, you need to to know about the technicality of uh, setting up a financial instrument and close a deal. You needed to understand the investment terms and you needed to be familiar with some 
some tools, some practical tools. But once you have done and closed the deal, you need to support the company building up and scaling up. And so you need to really understand the way the companies run, the way the company is really setting up a solution, is entering a market, is working with other competitors in the arena. So I believe that this is what really matters. What matters is to build up and support the companies that will be successful rather than being a fantastic structurer in a financial deal. Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, the, a lot of the emphasis is on being smart around forming these deals, but the heavy lifting and the work comes afterwards in helping them succeed and, uh, you know, we live in this world where every funder, every VC talks about how they're, you know, dedicated to working with the entrepreneurs to scale it. But it's after the deal that you find out who's uh, walking the walk and, and who's not. Absolutely. <laughs> you come from a traditional banking background. So you're covering emerging markets for 12 years in investment banking. How did that transition happen? Did the fact that you were working in emerging markets um, lead you to impact as well? Or t- tell us a bit about that journey. Yeah, I think it mattered because uh, when I used to be in, let's say, mainstream finance, uh, I had a sort of uh, inflection point uh, while being in, uh, I used to say, the golden gauge of the finance uh, in the really the the right time. So before 2008, I guess. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so we used to like to spoil ourselves in these, uh, well, utopistic uh, words. And uh, it was uh, probably it was too much at that time. And uh, I understood that the finance I used to deal with uh, was not really the finance who could uh, really contribute in, uh, in really addressing some uh, big uh, issues. So I was really dealing with a finance who could benefit just the 5% of mankind. And so while I was in the emerging markets, I always had the opportunity to visit some slums in India or Philippines. And I realized back then that probably it was not it was not too gold, such golden places uh, and uh, I wanted to do something different. So it was exactly the kind of the finance I did and the kind of the markets I cover that helped me in understanding that uh, if you want to do something that uh, contributes a little bit in uh, bettering our world, uh, I had to change it. And so actually before the Opus Italia Fund, which you co-founded in 2019, was the Opus LCEF, the foundation, which you, you co-founded and you're the chair of now. Did you go directly from banking into starting this or was there, how did that journey, what was yeah. the transition there? Well, actually the foundation, as you say, came before Opus Italia and actually was the foundation that incubated Opus Italia and had a big role in uh, promoting this new adventure, let's say, this new journey. But uh, it was not a direct, uh, let's say, a direct shift uh, from uh, my mainstream finance uh, then back into the foundation impact investing. 
but I spent 12 years uh, in uh, development cooperation. So I I left with, you know, the finance, the golden cage of the finance I practiced in my early life. And I joined what I used to call the happy crowd of the people who wanted to save the world with, uh, you know, the really development cooperation projects. And uh, I was the managing director of uh, an NGO, an international NGO working in Africa and Latin America mainly. And that, again, it was very instrumental in uh, letting me understanding that, again, that probably I could use the finance I knew and I used to deal with in a different way. Because, again, I understood that finance could be a really good tool to tackle some poverty issues and overcoming the, let's say, really the, the shortcomings uh, of the conventional way of uh, tackling these issues with a development cooperation uh, approach. Okay, and then from there you moved over. So you're also an entrepreneur because you founded both the foundation and the fund. Can you tell us a little bit about the difference? Between, so the fund is also doing impact investing. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about the difference between the foundation and the fund in terms of approach and assets and things like that? Yeah, okay. The expectations uh, are very much the same. So our expectation uh, in the fund and the foundation are really contributing, uh, um, finding solutions and supporting solutions. But uh, the differences are huge. The fund uh, has a completely different risk tolerance. We have limited partners and uh, we have uh, some uh, boundaries in what we can do and what we are really allowed to do. The foundation is a more, I would say, an experimental hub. As I say, we with the foundation, we incubated the fund. The foundation currently is uh, incubating another fund for East Africa. The foundation uh, structure a very flexible uh, financial instrument during COVID uh, in order to accommodate uh, the different expectations from companies uh, struggling uh, in terms of liquidity. So it's a completely different strategy, I would say, even if uh, the the expectations are very much the same. Yeah, I'm a big believer that foundations should be using the highest risk capital and being the most experimental. And unfortunately, especially in Europe, that's not always the case. And this money that it's, you know, should be used for pushing the boat out a little bit on, on experimenting with social innovation sometimes ends up being very, uh, low, has, having a very low risk tolerance. So this, it's good to hear that. You mentioned East Africa. So you're working on a fund there. You already have one investment in Kenya with Copia Global. Is that through the foundation? Yeah, exactly. The foundation works mainly in Africa, East Africa and Italy, but with a different target compared with the fund. And Copia has been one of our early investments and one of the, I would say, most successful so far. The company has grown dramatically over these years. The foundation invested back in 2013 
when the company was a very tiny, tiny pilot. And what do they do? What do they do? Uh, they do distribution and logistic. Uh, basically, they tackle the, the, the beauty of the companies that they wanted to tackle the problem of the poverty penalty. So if you are poor, you pay more. Yeah. Okay, And that is uh, unacceptable. And uh, the idea, the vision of the founders uh, was uh, to make possible that uh, all poor people, people who had not um, big pocket money, could access any kind of product and service at a fair price. So the company distributes any kind of product in the rural area in Kenya and recently Uganda. And with more than a million customers and more than 35,000 agents, I mean, it's a huge I would say it's a huge dream. Eh? It's a fantastic dream. Eh? And the company has delivered really a lot. And now, and now they're doing a $100 million Series D round. What is it like to have been with them from the very beginning when they had like a dozen employees and now they have 15,000 agents across East Africa? What's your role been through that whole process? And how do you work with them in these different stages? Well, I would say that first we feel very proud that we have been a part of this big dream for all these years from the very beginning. We were few at initially with some investors, mainly from U.S., and um, it was a, a sort of a leap of faith at the beginning because we had so little to validate this vision. And um, I think that our role was uh, instrumental for the one who came after because we contributed in the risking uh, the investment. And uh, of course, the management didn't really need, the team didn't really need uh, very much in terms of the operative support because it's uh, standing, it's a fantastic team. And they have done uh, all by themselves. Uh, and so they were able then to, to raise uh, so much money over the years. I think that the contribution of the early investor was that uh, as I say, we supported the company in the risking the investment in the eyes of the late investors. I'm doing some work with recyclers, investing in recyclers in Kenya at the moment. And I, I love Nairobi and I, I love the entrepreneurial spirit. I love everything about that city. And it's been such a hub for social innovation over the last number of years. As you raise this fund right now, how is it? How is we're in obviously a very strange funding environment globally right now. Has that affected you at the raising a fund level? What's the appetite like right now for investing in East Africa and Kenya specifically? Well, the team that the foundation is working to raise this fund is just started meeting potential investors. As you say, the market is now a little bit struggling, I think, to find its own way because there's still much liquidity. But, uh, you know, the crisis that we have gone through and we are experiencing probably makes investors a little bit more concerned. And uh, it's always not easy for a first team, a first uh, a fund to raise funds, but uh, I'm very positive that the team is strong enough to do it. And if you think, Ryan, of it, just a very fraction 
of all the in, in venture capital uh, is allocated uh, in Africa, I think there's still room uh, for many players uh, to position themselves there because it's a huge opportunity. The, the overall continent is growing uh, at a very acceptable rate uh, compared to, to our uh, old Europe and continent uh, and probably we cannot underestimate, uh, of course, the challenges of the continent has, uh, but uh, I think that it's still uh, like a blue ocean, probably. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, the demographics are in favor of this. And um, yeah, is the team mostly in Kenya? Uh, the team is Kenya. Uh, the fund uh, manager actually is uh, from India. She has been in the impact investing scene for the last uh, 12 years very talented is uh, and of course is uh, a very uh, gender balanced team but currently is uh, made by just women maybe we are wow. too much unbalanced <laughs> but uh, it's again is uh, it will be a fund with a very strong uh, gender and diversity lens yeah. and uh, i think uh, the challenge for all investors uh, in the continent uh, will be really to address uh, the issue of uh, women-led enterprise. I mean, it really to allocate more capital into women-led enterprises in the continent and the local teams. Because what is, uh, I think, a statistic that is very staggering is that, uh, again, a very limited uh, amount of venture capital uh, in the region goes uh, into local uh, local team. Mm. And uh, I think this is something that we should really try to address uh, as uh, impact funds. And globally, only 7% of partners at venture capital firms are, are women. So definitely a lot of work to do on that side. Flying over from Kenya to Japan, I was really interested to find out that you spent uh, some time in Japan and that there's a Japanese phrase that's really important to you and influences your approach to impact investing and due diligence and everything. And I'm going to try to say it. Mianai koto o miru. What does that mean and why does it influence your approach? Uh, yeah, it's true. It's uh, one of my favorite uh, sentences that is uh, really stuck in my mind. It's been stuck in my mind for so long now. It means uh, you look at things that you don't see at first. So I think that uh, investor and especially impact investor, but any investor, should really try to look at the company from different uh, eyes and different angles. And sometimes you have really to see what is not uh, visible at the first sight. And um, this is why I think that the due diligence uh, process and the due diligence uh, training, uh, it's a training for investors uh, themselves because you need to train your eyes, you need to train your understanding, uh, and you need to train your listening. So listening to is uh, the entrepreneurs, the team, and the different stakeholders is the most important uh, it's the most important. Uh, I think, uh, think you have to keep in mind when you look at the company. I love that. That's a beautiful way to look at it. Traveling now back to Europe and to Italy, we're recording this one week after the Prime Minister of Italy, Mario Draghi, was compelled 
to resign, basically, despite massive popular support, but through some mechanisms of Italian parliament that maybe you understand, but probably the rest of us don't. And um, you live in Italy. I'm actually a part-time resident of Italy as well in Trieste. And uh, (laughs) should I be scared? Are you scared? What's going to happen? What does this mean for the impact investing or social innovation sector going ahead? Is it just a whole series of unknowns? Well, uh, yeah, as you say, Ryan, it happened unexpectedly, or maybe not so much, but it broke our hearts. And uh, we felt so comfortable with uh, Draghi, and we thought that he was a good, uh, you know, a good captain for our boat, you know, a troubled boat, and especially in these troubled times. We have a lot of question marks still there. We don't know. Uncertainty is not good for any market, any industry, and especially when times are so difficult. But I think that social innovators will stay there. We find a good reason to fight their battle, maybe more than ever, and uh, I see my country is always uh, struggling, but is always uh, able to sail troubled waters. So I wanted to, of course, convince myself to stay positive. And uh, again, um, impact investing uh, has a lot to do here in Italy. We are still very much behind uh, compared to other countries in Europe, across Europe. but. Um, we will find our strengths, even in the most difficult scenario. Hopefully not, but we need to be ready. Let's keep our fingers crossed. And yeah, well, we can only keep positive in, in these days. The last question I always ask in this podcast, so you're based in Milan. Give us a tip, maybe something that's not in the guidebook for us listeners when we're in Milan. What's one thing you think we should do? Okay. <laughs> I don't know whether it is in the guidebook or not, but what I love to do when I'm in my thinkful mood and I need to find some inspiration is to spend some time in a small church in Chiesa di Santa Maria in San, Presso San Satiro. It's a long name, but <laughs> is close to Corso Torino via Torino, and it's a small church where you have a fantastic painting by Bramante, is an Italian architect, and you feel like you are in an optical perspective, very strange, so you find yourself there and you feel that you are in a different world, and I think it can really bring a lot of inspiration, so that is my tip. A nice, quiet place to gather your thoughts in these uh, challenging times. <laughs> yeah, and regardless of your fate, I think that is the place you can go, where whichever fate you have and whichever, I mean, whichever God you believe in. Yeah, well put, well put. Elena Casolati, thank you so much for joining today. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. You can find out more about EVPA at www.evpa.eu.com, including information on its training academy and how you can become a member. Remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it now to hear more stories like this one.